Happy Palm Sunday to everyone. Uh, we are kicking off Holy Week, which feels weird uh, in one sense because I feel like we just did this. Uh, and I don't, maybe not for you, but I feel like we were prepping for Holy Week for like last year two weeks ago, and now we're here again. Uh, yet at the same time, I feel like the last year has been like five years long. Like I feel like I've been living in quarantine and wearing masks forever. Uh, it's been a weird year. Uh, but here we are again at Holy Week, and, and uh, you know, and I, I said happy Palm Sunday, but I don't mean it. Uh, not because I don't want you to like have a good day or anything like that, uh, but more so because I don't think Palm Sunday is really a happy day. Like it's not a happy day in my opinion. And I know there's like a lot of fanfare and there's the palms and a lot of celebration and pomp and circumstance that kind of a a accompanies Palm Sunday. But uh, for me, it's a very kind of hollow celebration because of course I know the rest of the story. I know the same people that were laying down their cloaks and their palms on the street were gonna be the same people that would be trying to nail Jesus to a cross in a few days. Like the same people that were shouting Hosanna four days later would be shouting crucify him. So like all of their Hosannas, like it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't fill me with joy. I don't see this as a happy day. I kind of see it as a sad, melancholy day. So really, what I really mean to say is melancholy Palm Sunday to you. Uh, that doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. Uh, but it turns out that Palm Sunday, uh, it, it wasn't really a day that Jesus was super thrilled with either. Uh, there's a, a little part of the Palm Sunday story that uh, doesn't get hit on often. Uh, you know, you guys, you probably remember the palms. Uh, you probably remember people laying out their cloaks. Pe remember people shouting, Hosanna, you know, to King of Kings, save us, all of that. You might even remember the Pharisees kind of coming in and being like, Jesus, you can't, you can't have people worship you. And Jesus being like, if I told them to, to be quiet, even the stones would be singing my praises right now. Maybe we remember all of that. But, but there's this, this little scene. It's actually right at the end. So after all of the pomp and circumstance, all of this celebration, we actually see Jesus weeping. It says that as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Here's Jesus. He has his own little, like, it's my party, I'll cry if I want to moment. He's sitting there, entering in after all of this, and he's just, he's in tears, and it's not tears of joy. His heart is broken. And, and you might think, well, yeah, you know, Jesus knows the rest of the story as well. He knows how empty this is. He knows that these same people are going to crucify him within a few days. He knows that this isn't going to be a happily ever after story at the, you know, come Friday afternoon. And so maybe he's weeping about that. But actually, he says that he wept over it and he said, if you, even you, all right, he's talking to Jerusalem. These are his people whom he loves. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, right? If you only knew what would bring you peace, but you missed it. And he says, and the days are going to come upon you when your enemies are going to build an embankment against you, and they're going to dash you to the ground. He says they're going to not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here's Jesus, and he sees this group of people that he loves, and it doesn't matter how big the party was that they were throwing for him. He's, he's heartbroken, and he's not, he's not heartbroken because he knows what they're going to do to him. He's not heartbroken because he's afraid of what's going to happen to him. He's heartbroken because he knows what's going to happen to them. And he loves them, and he cares for them. And he, he knows that it's going to end in their destruction. And as he, he says this, he's, he's actually pointing ahead to a couple of things. He's pointing ahead to the actual destruction of Jerusalem that would come about 40 years later. Rome was going to come in and just ransack Jerusalem and leave it in ruins. But even more so, Jesus was pointing ahead to a, a fuller destruction. Because Jesus believed something. He believed 
that there's more to life than, than the here and now. I'm going to uh, borrow an illustration. It's uh, not original to me. Some of you might have seen it before, but I think it's a really helpful visual. So uh, Jesus believed that uh, this rope here represents you, your life, your whole life. And it, it extends all the way back here, and it extends all the way back into the stage where you can't even see the end of it. In fact, it, it kind of goes on forever, and Jesus understood that there's this, this little orange part right here. And this little orange part, this represents the, you know, 60, 80, 100 years maybe you get to live here now, this experience of life, and, and then we die, and then we live <laughs> for all of this. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And Jesus knows that because of the decisions that we've made in this little part right here, that we've made decisions to reject God and rebel against him and live our own way. Because of that, each and every one of us are, are destined to spend all of this apart from God. Uh, which for some of you, you're like, that doesn't bother me. I don't mind spending all of this apart from God because I, I don't know if I believe he exists. I don't know if he's real. I don't know if I like him. But for Jesus, Jesus believed and understood that God is the source of everything good, everything pleasant, everything enjoyable. And so to spend eternity apart from God is to spend eternity apart from anything good or pleasant and enjoyable. And Jesus saw this, and it, it broke his heart. And so Jesus decided to do something about it. And so Jesus was going to Jerusalem with the express purpose of going to the cross. And he would hang on that cross, and he, in that moment, as he gave up his final breath, he would actually experience the eternal separation from God that each, in, uh, each of us deserve, so that he could make a, a way for us to spend all of this in the presence of God, with the source of everything good and pleasant and enjoyable, that all of this would be full of delight instead of the, the misery that we deserve. If only we recognize him. If only we see him and believe in him. There's this really obscure uh, verse in John that captures it really well. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. Uh, it's John 3.16. Uh, it says that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. And the perishing that he's talking about, he's, he's talking about the perishing that would take place throughout all of this part. Not this part. All of this part. It says that whoever believes in him shouldn't have to perish, but have eternal life. That all of this would be filled with life and joy and delight. So Jesus is riding into town and he sees a group of people that are throwing this major party for him right here because they thought that he was going to improve right here for them and they didn't recognize who he was. And it broke his heart. Because he knew that they were destined to spend all of this apart from God if they didn't come to see him and know him. Now that sounds like a major downer to start off Palm Sunday. But we've been in, in this series called Superlative and we're getting to the end of this series. And with everything in life, there are these degrees of kind of good, better, best Right? And so we've been looking at a variety of things, the, the better community, the best community, the best joy, the best relationships, the best love. And today I want to talk about the best party, uh, the best party, the superlative party. Because, of course, here was this incredible party people were throwing in Jesus' honor. Right? I've never had a party where the whole city came out and they were just like celebrating me, his own private ticker tape parade. Right? And it left him in tears. Because it didn't matter how big the party was here, <laughs> in this little spot, when the people he, he loved and he cared for, this part wasn't going to be a party at all. 
And it sounds like a downer, and it sounds like maybe we're going to talk about the superlative sadness, but we're not. We're going to talk about the superlative party, because on the flip side, if you think about it, if, if it doesn't matter, you know, if the party here was so great and knowing this was misery, left Jesus sad, weeping. Well, think about it if the fact gets flipped. Think about what happens when even one person who is destined to spend all of this apart from God changes direction. If one person changes so that all of this gets to be spent in eternal delight and pleasure with our God and our creator, well, that's worth rejoicing in. That's where Jesus celebrates. In fact, there's another spot in Luke where Jesus talks about uh, people being found, people who are lost, like their their life was heading in this direction. He says that even, even if one person, even if one person goes from death to life in this part, he says all of heaven just erupts in this like rager. There's this major party that goes on in heaven over one person going from death to life in this part. He even says that, that if one person goes from death to life in this part, there's more rejoicing over that than if a if hundred people, a hundred Christians go from being, you know, a lesser Christian to a better Christian. Like, that there's more celebration, there's more rejoicing if one person comes to know Jesus and trust him that all of this changes for them than if, if, say, all of Beacon Church, all of the Christians represented in our community, if we are, like, nailing it, if we are, you know, coming to church every Sunday and we're serving in a ministry and we are going to discipleship classes and we're in D groups and we're in a small group and we're doing all of those things super, super well, all right? Not that these things aren't important, right? Don't mishear me. These are super important, but... There's more rejoicing if if just one person who didn't know Jesus comes to know Jesus and all of this changes for eternity. And and if you do the math, if you think about it logically, that makes sense. Because if you take this little part for for all of us, all right, not even for all for all of humanity right now, you take like nine billion or whatever, eight billion of this little part, and you, you kind of extend them out end to end, as long as you want, it still won't add up to this for one person, the eternity of one person. And, and I, I just want to be really cautious because sometimes when we talk about this, you can start to think, well, that means nothing here matters, that like, oh, we, should, we can just disregard this. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus, Jesus felt it was really important to care for people here. Like he did a lot to heal people just for this part, to bring relief and, and joy and love into this part. It's not that this part doesn't matter. It's just this part this part matters infinitely more. And when one person goes from death to life in this part, that is the superlative party. That is where the, the rejoicing really begins. Every party will be measured against the party when one person goes from death to life. And, and here's uh, one of the sad things. I think for most Christians, we will never get to personally experience like being a part of someone going from death to life. Like, this is the best thing that we could ever experience. This is the eternal thing. And I think for most of us, we're never going to experience it. Which is sad. Because <laughs> this is available. We've actually been called by Jesus as priests. You know, we say this as part of our, our communion liturgy uh, each week when we say that we are a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. We, you. So not me. Not like just me as a pastor or, you know, whatever. Every one of us who is a follower of Christ, we are priests. 
in Jesus' kingdom, we are called into this work and empowered for this work so that we can actually walk alongside people going from death to life in this whole part. It's amazing what we're, the opportunity that we're given, and yet I think for so many of us, we're never going to see it. And I think one of the, the main reasons, my experience in talking to people, one of the main reasons why we don't engage in this part is we don't know how. We feel like we're ill-equipped. We feel like, you know, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a, a theologian. I'm not a trained apologist. What am I supposed to do? Like, I, I trip over my words, and I, I'm not good at communicating and all of those things, and, and I get that. And none of that needs to be there in order to, for you to be a part of someone's story going from death to life. And so what I wanted to do today is I wanted to give you advice. Uh, this is the advice that uh, the Apostle Peter gave to the first century church. All right, not to pastors, not to trained apostles. He gave it to everyone in the church. Simple advice. This is the kind of stuff that no matter who you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you could do this. You could be working on these things so that you can actually be a part of this transformation, this eternal transformation in someone's life. Things that, they're, they're not complicated. They're not easy, right? They're, it might require some sacrifice and some work, but, but it's doable, you don't have to have any special qualification or special gifting to do these things. And so I wanted to share with you this advice that Peter gave. Uh, and so we're going to read through it. It's just one verse, one verse. We're going to read through it together, and then we're going to uh, unpack it and see how this advice breaks down in our lives. And so what I, I actually want to do, if you're in the room, would you stand with me and recite this with me? Uh, if you're at home, uh, you can also stand if you want. I can't tell if you're listening. But, you know, just shake it out a little bit. Uh, so we're going to read this all together. By the way, this is, this is one of those great verses that is worth memorizing. So if uh, you're into scripture memory, this is one of those ones that's worth, like, taking the time to commit it to memory. But uh, in the room and at home, would you read this with me? Starting in, uh, with the word but. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I can read, guys. I promise you I can. Uh, it's a weird angle. Uh, I just told you you should memorize it. I should have this committed. Uh, I want to read that. I want to read that one more time. All right, let's do that one more time together. You did great. I didn't. All right, so let's try this one more time. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. You guys can take a seat. So there's, uh, there's three practices here, three things, just little bits of advice, things that you can do now, regardless of where you're at in life, things that you can start doing, adding to your, your rhythms of life so that you can be prepared that you can be ready to actually accompany somebody as they, they get to go from death to life so that you can be a part of the party, right? I think for many of us, you, you, guys, you guys, you get to hear stories like after they happened, right? You get to hear about, oh, so-and-so came to faith, and we get to celebrate that, which is awesome. But that's a little bit like hearing about a really great party after it happened, right? Which is almost worse sometimes. Like, I don't know if you guys in high school or college, you know, did any partying. Of course you didn't. Uh, but, you know, it, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun when you would hear about a really great party after it happened. You want to be there for it. And, and I think if we put this advice into, into practice in our lives, we get to be a part of the party. We get to see it as it's happening, be used by God in these ways. But he starts with this, this simple idea of cultivating a heartfelt awe of Jesus. 
right? Cultivate a heartfelt awe of Jesus. He says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is something that's happening in our hearts. It's not just in our minds. It's in our hearts. But he says, revere Christ as Lord. And that word revere, the, the root of it is the same root for the word holy. Right? It's, actually, it's actually the same word that in the Lord's Prayer when we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's the same word there. This idea of hallowing, this idea of, of recognizing who Jesus is and seeing him as holy. Right? Holy being perfect and pure and just like there being nothing wrong in him. Being perfect, the superlative being, but also just him being completely separate other than us. He's so high above. Uh, I think if, if we were to kind of put it in today's vernacular, just be seeing that Jesus is awesome. He's saying, I want you guys to know in your hearts that Jesus is awesome, right? And it makes sense that if you want other people to see that Jesus is awesome, then you probably need to see Jesus as awesome as well, right? It's not going to be compelling to talk about a Jesus that you don't think is that great. But there's a couple of things that happen when you revere Jesus as Lord, when you kind of have this heartfelt awe of Jesus. First, when you see Jesus as Lord in this way, you know that Jesus doesn't need you to defend him. He's Lord. You don't need to come to his rescue. You don't need to battle people that say things against Jesus. You don't need to, you know, come. He's not a damsel in distress. You, you might remember that, that story when uh, Jesus is arrested in the garden and Peter pulls out his sword and cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 put, put the sword away. And he heals the guy's ear and he tells Peter, he says, Peter, if I wanted, I could call down a legion of angels to come and rescue me. Right? I don't need you to protect me or defend me. I'm the Lord of angel armies, right? And so when we revere Christ as Lord, we don't, we don't need to come to his rescue. We don't need to defend him. We don't have to kind of come from this position of insecurity. He's Lord. He, he can carry himself. But there's another thing that happens when Jesus is Lord. When we have this heartfelt awe of him, Jesus will always be the hero of our story. And it's easy to take things that are related to Jesus and make them more important to our story than Jesus. It's easy for us to take good things, right? Even maybe people, right? There's, there's somebody that, you know, for you, they were a, a huge spiritual influence. And to think of them, like, they're the hero of my story. They're not. Jesus is the hero of your story. Or even a place like Beacon that, that sometimes we can get more excited talking about our church and what's going on here in the church than talking about Jesus and what he is capable of doing. Or even, even scripture, right? Our whole lives, our, our whole lives as followers of Jesus are shaped by scripture. And so we, we, of course, want to uphold scripture. I don't think you can know Jesus truly without scripture, but you can know scripture backwards and forwards and not know Jesus. This was the Pharisees, right? Scripture is not our hero. Jesus is, right? Jesus is the hero of our story. Or, or maybe Christian ethics and morals. Sometimes we, we can be, you know, champions of Christian morals and ethics as, you know, these good decisions that we make in our life. These are the hero of our stories, but of course that's not true. We're not saved by Christian morals and ethics. We're saved by Jesus. So when we, we have this heartfelt awe of him, he's always going to be the hero of our story because he's on our hearts and he's in our minds. So he starts here, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Cultivate this heartfelt awe of Jesus. Cultivate that's, that's going to take work. That's going to take time. You might be sitting here today saying, I want that. I don't have it. That's a good place to start. Just admit, like, you know, right now I don't, I don't think Jesus is that awesome. I know he is, but I don't feel it. Well, we'll do something about that. And that's, the, you know, the rest of the series. We've talked about all sorts of practices that will help you do that. So I don't I want to rehash all that today. But be asking that question, do I, I find Jesus awesome today? 
and re-engage in those, those practices that we've been talking about all series long. Second, he says, always be preparing. He actually says, always be prepared. But of course, the only way to always be prepared is to always be preparing, right? It's kind of like physical fitness that uh, it, it, you can't just like work out last year and remain in shape this year. Uh, I've been learning that the hard way. Uh, so, uh, you know, for me, I'm 36 years old, and my plan was spend the first half working out and then ride that wave. Uh, and so, like, I was an athlete as a kid. I trained pretty hard, extremely fit, and I've been trying to ride that wave. It's not been going well. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I threw out my back. Uh, not the first time that's happened, uh, but for like a week, I had to walk around like I had a stick up my butt, and uh, there was nothing I could do, and it was just I was in extreme pain. And uh, and do you know what? You know how I did it? You know how I, I threw my back out? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm genuinely asking, how did I throw my back out? Because I have no idea. I didn't lift anything. Like I just went to bed and I woke up, and sleeping apparently is too hard on my body. Uh, and so uh, this is what happens when. You, you stop preparing, right? Uh, when you, you don't keep up with it, when you don't maintain it, it kind of drifts away. And so when he, he says always be prepared, there's this kind of ongoing preparation, this maintenance that needs to happen. Uh, but there's, there's two things. There's two things that are being prepared. And the first is being prepared to live questionably. We pre uh, prepare to live questionably. And this is, uh, might sound strange, but it'll make more sense in a moment. Because he says, always be prepared to give an answer. Right? He doesn't say always be prepared to give a sermon, always be prepared to give a presentation of the gospel, always be prepared to draw your diagrams. He says always be prepared to give an answer, and an answer demands a question. Right? It, it, it can't be an answer. It can be a speech, it can be a monologue, it can be whatever, but it can't be an answer unless it's in response to a question. And Peter, he assumes that there is going to be something about our lives Right? In the external part of our life, something that's obvious and observable that will cause people to ask a question. He expects it, that the question is coming. And it's a specific question in particular. He says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. He's saying that if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you really do believe that there's this part, and then there's all this, and that Jesus has saved you for all of this, that all of this is going to be delight and treasure and enjoyment in the presence of God. If, if that's true, right, that's what hope is. It's looking at this part. He says, if that's true, if you really do live like this is real, then it's going to shape how you, you live and behave here in such a way that it's going to cause people to question. Because, of course, if, if this is all there is, if this is all there is, people who live like this is all there is, their lives are going to look like they're living for this. <laughs> that makes sense, right? People who live for this, they're going to spend their money on this. They're going to spend their money in a way to, to maximize the, the luxury and enjoyment and pleasure that they can get here, right? Or some of them are actually going to pinch every penny, right, going through here so that they can maximize the, the security and enjoyment and peace for a little bit right here at the end, right? But if we're living for this, then we're going to spend our money differently. 
We're, we're going to probably do things that some people think is, is risky or reckless. We might spend our money in ways that people don't understand why we would miss out on, on some of the luxury and, tr- and pleasures here when we could afford it if we want. It's going to look different. Right? People, people who are living for right here, this little part, they're going to respond differently to adversity and suffering that comes along here. Because, of course, if this is all there is, then if there's adversity and suffering, then you want to fix that. <laughs> you want to get rid of that. And so it's going to lead people to d- despair and complaining. It's going to p- lead people to d- desperately trying to do whatever they can to try and fix the situation, to alleviate the pain. But if we're living for here, then we're going to respond and react differently to suffering and pain that happens here. It's not going to throw us off. We're not going to lose our hope because our hope isn't in here. It's in here. And this hope is secure. Parenting, parents who are are parenting for here, you're going to make very different choices. Because if you're parenting for here, then you know that you're also parenting your kids for here. And you're going to want to make sure that they can have the best chance at success and that they have every opportunity. They don't miss any opportunity. You're going to sign them up for everything and you're going to make sure that they want for nothing because this is all that matters. But if if you're parenting them for here, you're going to make different decisions. You know, people living for here have no, no comprehension of why somebody would, uh, like, remain sexually pure. Or why somebody would fight for a marriage that's kind of crappy. Why they would stay in it and live it out. Because why would you do that if you're only living for here? But we're not living for here. We're living for here. And if that's true, if we really are living for here, then people who are living here for, for here are going to say, what's going on? Why are you different? Why is your life different? Why are your values different? Why do you actually live differently? This reminds me of uh, Ed's story. We uh, had the privilege of baptizing Ed uh, back in September. It was really, it was, it was awesome. Uh, but I got to hear a little bit of Ed's story while he was in Alpha. And Ed, you know, for, for years he had worked for this company uh, and they were starting to kind of like edge him out. And he got a sense of it. He understood, like he, he was... Uh, a little older, and they could find somebody younger and cheaper to do his job. And he was, he was kind of getting bitter about this and, and frustrated with his company and all of that. But Ed had a coworker, somebody who worked alongside for, for several years, this uh, woman, Amber. And they'd, you know, gotten to know each other uh, for a while. And at one point, Ed is, like, telling Amber, like, look, don't, <laughs> don't, like, don't trust the company. They're out for themselves. You know, they're going to, you know, use you, abuse you, and just let you go. And, and she, uh, she responds. He says, uh, maybe. <laughs> she says, but it's okay. She says, God's got me. Whether it's here or not here. And, and because they'd worked alongside of each other for years, Ed knew that that wasn't just like words, that she meant it. That if she lost her job tomorrow, like, she wouldn't have had the same reaction that he had. And there was all this bitterness and kind of welling up inside of him. And then he saw her respond and he's just like, what is going on with you? <laughs> how, how can you have that kind of peace in a world like this? And here, this woman, Amber, who, she's not a pastor or a theologian or, you know, have any special training. She was able to respond to his question with an answer. And she helped him get connected to a church. She doesn't live locally, so she did some research. She found Beacon, helped him connect here, needed Alpha. And, and then last, uh, last December, December of 2019, uh, Ed, one night, he decided that 
he, he knows who Jesus is now, and he's going to surrender his life to Jesus. Somebody who for 60 years, I don't know if, I hope I didn't give away an age there. Uh, <laughs> 60 years didn't know Jesus, but uh, on that, that night in December, because Amber lived differently. She really, she lived like this part was real. She prepared her life to live this way. In that moment, Ed's forever changed. Forever. His life for eternity went from death to life, not because of a preacher or an apologist or, you know, a, a theologian, because a woman who knew Jesus lived like this was real. She prepared to live questionably. Does your life look different? Does your life look like eternity matters? Like you're riding on that. Does the way you organize your life reflect that? And I, I ask that not to like guilt you or anything because that's not my goal. I'm just saying if we choose to live that way, people are going to ask the question. Prepare to live questionably, but it also tells us to prepare to respond reasonably. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. He didn't have to include that. He could have just said, prepare to give an answer to everyone who asks about the hope that you have. But he, he includes this idea of giving the reason. Because reason implies not just what, but why. Why do you believe what you believe? And this is one of the things that we need to prepare. We need to kind of think through in advance. Why do you believe what you believe? And I think there's a couple reasons why we need to, to prepare this. One is because maybe you just haven't thought about it. So you won't be able to communicate it clearly. But I think one of the other reasons is our why isn't very compelling sometimes. That, you know, for some of us, our why is, well, I grew up in, in the faith and I just always believed it. Uh, now, when you're sharing that with somebody else who didn't grow up in the faith, that's not helpful for them. That's not transferable, right? Uh, or, or maybe, you know, when you were young, you went to a conference and you had this kind of experience, this kind of personal experience with Jesus, uh, and, which is awesome. And, I, you know, I've had those and, and maybe you have as well. But if that's the only why, that's not transferable. Like you can't take that person back in time to that conference that you went to to have that experience with Jesus, right? Uh, there are reasons for what we believe. They're like legitimate reasons. Like there's nowhere in the Bible that Jesus encourages blind faith. We, there, we can have a reasonable faith. There are reasons logically and philosophically and historically and practically. Uh, and, and so we can prepare ourselves by learning these reasons. And we, we offer some classes as part of our discipleship classes. And there's books out there. But this is one of the ways that you don't have to be, and I'm not like saying we need to be professional apologists. All right? That's not what I'm saying. But we can be preparing to give a reasonable response. Why do we believe what we believe? Why does it make sense that we live for that part and not for this part? Lastly, don't be a jerk. Yep, it's right there in the text. Uh, this is me paraphrasing, but he says, do this with gentleness and respect, a.k.a. don't be a jerk. Uh, we don't get any brownie points for being right, <laughs> right? And sometimes as, as Christians, when we're, we're talking about our faith, we can come across as though, like, what separates me from you is that I'm right and you're wrong, which is garbage. No, what separates me from anybody who's not a follower of Jesus is that... Uh, I'm with him who is right. 
It's not that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm wrong too. I'm just with the one who is right. I, you know, we are like one beggar to come into another beggar just telling where to find bread. We're not better than they are, right? Gentle, right? Using a gentle hand and respectful, honoring them along the way. I was uh, so turned off to the whole world of uh, apologetics because when I was uh, a senior in high school, we had a world-famous apologist come to my, my church that I grew up in, and I was his chauffeur for the weekend, and I got to spend a lot of time with him, and he's such a jerk. <laughs> and I mean, like, I already knew Jesus and loved Jesus, thank goodness, because I don't know if I would have loved Jesus after that experience, but do it with gentleness and respect. We don't get extra points because we're right. No. We were just as wrong. We just know who, him who is the right one, the righteous one. And so if that's true, if we're coming from that posture, we can, be, we can be humble and gentle and respectful. And how often Christians have, uh, have done more harm than good with the right answers, the right answers with the wrong posture. And so I, I told you, it's not, it's not complicated. It's not rocket science. It's stuff that we can all do. It takes work, it takes some effort. But if you think about it, right, if you think about it, if you do this, if you decide that you're going to cultivate that heartfelt awe of Jesus so that he's, he's always before you as just awesome, and you're preparing yourself to live questionably and to be able to respond reasonably, and you're able to do it with gentleness and respect, there's going to be stories like Ed. People who, whatever's going on here in their life, this part will be changed for good. And even if one, even if, I promise you, even if you experience that only once in your life, you will walk away saying, that's the best thing I've ever done in my life. That is the superlative experience. That, that sort of rejoicing, that celebration, that kind of party, that is the superlative party. There's nothing that compares because it's a forever party. It's amazing. And, and it's true, like, we're, we're not going to be able to reach everyone. Not everyone's going to come to trust in Jesus. I get that. But wherever this happens, wherever we, we, there are people, there, there are followers of Jesus who have this heartfelt awe of Jesus and they're living questionably and they're responding reasonably and they're doing it with gentleness and respect, wherever that's happened, people do come to know Jesus. So yes, not everyone is going to you know, respond, but people will. Someone will. It's constantly happening and Jesus is inviting you into this experience and I just, I hope and I pray that you'll take him up on the offer. It's not complicated, but it's not easy. It's going to require you to engage, to put these things into practice.